Hello, and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. Welcome to this edition of the Workplace Happiness Podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined on this edition by Professor Paul Dolan, a behavioural scientist and the author of the best-selling books, Happy Ever After, A Radical New Approach to Living Well, and Happiness by Design, Finding Pleasure and Purpose in Everyday Life. Uh, Paul's a professor of behavioural science at the London School for Economics and Political Science. He's also a West Ham fan, and he spent his early life in Swansea. So, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you very much for having me on, Mark. Now, can we start with those early days? Um, I know that you went to Swansea University and you got a degree in economics there, but take us back before that. Take us back to your school days. Did you ever imagine that you'd become an academic? Yeah, well, thanks for that. You're trying to make me feel old now, aren't you? So see if I can remember back that far. So um, no, I don't think so. I don't, really, I don't really remember too much about what I thought then, but I don't ever remember having any ambition to do anything, really. I don't think I do now even, really. I don't think I've ever had a, a strategy or a plan or a, or a goal or... A, I was talking earlier to someone about having drive but not being driven by, you know, by the consequence. I've, I've always had drive. I can remember that at school as well. I kind of quite like learning. I was a bit geeky, um, but not with any end product in mind. Did you think um, growing up, Paul, that you would have a life in, in academia? Were your parents keen for you to pursue that kind of academic life? I mean, how did that all come about? I think like a lot of what happens, I mean, we can always tell... We can always tell good stories after the fact about why things happened in the way they did, and we can make them sound convincing and coherent. I'm not entirely sure any of them are ever true. I mean, they, 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 there's a lot of randomness and luck involved, and um, I just it was just it was random and it was just lucky. I, I remember neither of my parents had been to university. I think they had kind of family thought they had a bit of a, a sort of a, a freak on their hands with a kid that was kind of reasonably smart at school, or whatever. Um, and I never, I, yeah, I just kind of sailed through most of most of school and university, and I left. I left university and then went and did chartered accountancy for for a year, which was, uh, it was yeah, that was that was an experience. But that was what made me get sort of run back to school, uh, and then I went and did a masters, and that sort of fell into a PhD, and I fell into, and I fell into working in academia, and it was never, as I say, it was never an, never an intention or an ambition. It was just kind of sort of doing things that I found interesting and uh I felt I, I do I do remember feeling quite honored to be being paid to do something that I enjoyed and not to get my hands dirty and have to get up too early in the morning so I mean I think most of the people that I grew up around had jobs that they didn't enjoy so I think I felt quite privileged to be doing something that I enjoyed and and how would you describe the younger you I don't know it's so hard to remember I'm, I'm not very psychologically connected I don't think to to my past or, or, or even indeed to my future really um I, I don't have too much of a, a rumination nor a projection i i think um you know i was i was i was probably a bit geeky at school i i was never the, i was i was never i was never the most popular kid in class right i was never one of those cool 
cool kids. Um, I sort of grew into my coolness as I got older. <laughs> I only say that half in jest. <laughs> Where did you go to school? <laughs> well, I went to I, I went to a comprehensive school in Harlow um, town, um, and then from there I, I went to Harlow Tertiary College then to do my A levels. Um, and then I remember going to university and thinking or, or choosing universities. And I again, I had sort of no no experience of anyone that had been to university. So I chose universities on the basis of them being on a campus, which for some reason felt like that was a good thing to do. And secondly, most importantly, was at least a couple hundred miles away from home. So my parents couldn't just turn up. Um, that, that, that seemed quite important. So uh, that's how I kind of landed in Swansea. Um, and uh, I, I, had a, I, had a, I had a really, really nice, nice time there, actually. Uh, what drew you to economics at Swansea? Well, I liked my teacher at A-level. I, I did economics, maths and politics. And I and I remember uh, the maths kind of started losing interest in it. It all, be, uh, all became a bit abstract. I remember when we started doing the, the square root of minus one was I or something. And that started kind of make it, making me feel a bit like, like it wasn't wasn't as relevant to my life as doing politics and economics. And I did my A-levels um, between 84 and 86. And of course, the minus strike was 85. So that was a really, you know, it was a really interesting time to be doing politics and I enjoyed the economics it was we had a really good teacher um and so it kind of felt like an obvious thing to go away and do at university and and was there any doubt in your mind that you'd go and study at university did you did your parents say Paul you should go and get a proper job or were they encouraging no my parents my parents were, were neither encouraging nor discouraging in a sense I mean they always sort of valued education Having having not had any not had any formal education than themselves really, um, so but there was never any pressure on, on on me I think and that was quite good that that felt quite healthy not to be pushed into it or pushed into anything. Um, I, I again I remember going away to university thinking this would actually be quite because because most of the people did jobs that they didn't enjoy. I think it was an opportunity to put off working for three years and it sounded like it was actually quite fun you know going away with other people that were eighteen and having some fun at university. So I think it was as much to avoid working um, as it was to do anything beyond it. I had no idea what the what the returns to higher to higher education would be for for for, for instance. I mean I, it was just purely again what was gonna be better for me in that moment. So then then you decided to to go into accountancy. Um, so what was it that that made you take that step? Well, I realised that once I was doing accountancy and stuff, I actually realised that I quite like learning. I kind of sort of sailed through university and school and stuff. And, and I thought, actually, I really do quite like this learning malarkey. So I, so I went and did a master's uh, at York. And then I got from the master's, then, see, then I just got sucked into what was then the Centre for Health Economics, probably still is, um, working as a health economist, um, because that was because I got offered a job there. I did well on my master's and got offered a post there and did my PhD alongside working. and did a lot of work on um, quality adjusted life years. It was um, ways in which we might value benefits of healthcare in order to, to use the monies that we spend on healthcare wisely. And um, I really I, I really threw myself into that, I think. That was the first time that I'd really not just drifted or sailed along in some sense. As I, as I say, I think I do remember feeling lucky. And I thought, well, I'm gonna be, you know, I'm being paid to read and write and think and stuff. I mean, that's, that's a privilege. So I'm gonna make, you know, I almost like kind of owe it, as much to other people as to myself, really, in some sense, to, to, to make this work. And how long did you stay at York for, Paul? Yeah, I was at York till 98, so four, four years I was there, I think, from no, 90, 
90, no, 91, I actually first started my academic appointment. Then 90, 94, I had a joint appointment between York and Newcastle. 98, I went to Sheffield um, and I was at Sheffield and then till 2004, five, when I went to Princeton. And I came back from North America to Imperial and then LSE in 2010. I had a really good time at all those places. I had a great time at Sheffield. That was a really good party. That was when all the clubs were going on in the north of north of England. So we were going around um, following the superstar DJs. <laughs> and, and then during that time, other than going to, uh, to <laughs> nightclubs and uh, uh, having a great time, what was it about the work that you were doing in those various institutions that appealed to you? Well, it felt, you know, without being too grand, it felt important. And, I, I it, you know, the stuff that the, the work I did on qualities has been pretty impactful that 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 early work and I wasn't doing it necessarily for the impact it was it was going to have but it felt like it was it felt like it was important and it kind of I suppose in many ways as acts as a, a precursor to, to some of the stuff I write about in happiness by design which is about you know finding pleasure and purpose in everyday life as you read the subtitle out and it is about finding things that you do in life it doesn't have to be in work um but but feel like they have a point to them but not 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 a point not a point beyond them not not a point subsequently or when you reflect back upon it but have a point whilst you're doing it that, 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 that feel like they're worthwhile like the like the chat we're having now and not not necessarily even if we reflect on it as having been a nice chat but actually in the moment in the experience of it and so you you've done a huge amount of work now as you've just said out Princeton and Sheffield and an LSE uh, as a behavioral scientist on on happiness and what what would you say that you've learnt over all those years? What what are the key lessons that stand out for you? We're certainly aware of confirmation bias, right? That's that's a big part of you know kind of so so we so we find things and then we just prove that we were right to have thought them in the first place. So so I think there's been a huge amount of that because <laughs> I knew I was right all along. Um, but there are some things that some things that you know, but you but you have them confirmed. I think are are important. I mean, for example, I talked about the role of randomness and luck before, and I think. The, the more I read about, you know, what things determine what we do and how we feel, the more I appreciate literally, genuinely how much randomness plays a part. People say that they've been, that, that, that they've had good fortune or they've been lucky, but they don't really mean it um, sometimes. I think they feel like they, they ought to say it because it's the right thing to say, but, you know, because then, then, they'll, then they'll go on to say, but you can make your own luck. We, we, um, well, I mean, you can't make randomness. I mean, that's, you know, um, so, so I do think that that real, that that not it's not realization, but that but that embedding of of just how much of what we do and where and how we feel and where we end up in life is determined by factors that are genuinely outside of our control. I like talking about in Happy Ever After. It's interesting. I kind of when you think about when you look at audiences when you're giving talks in the days that we could we could do this live and you you see in which bits make people sit a bit more uncomfortably on their chair. That's the kind of stuff I like talking about. It's the sort of things I want to sort of prod and poke people a little bit with and and I like this idea that you know so we we we're all willing to accept that that most things are outside our, of of our control except effort right because effort then gets loaded with everything that is volitional that all of how hard we work is a function of what we decide well it's kind of interesting isn't it that would be that seems a bit odd because why how have all these other things like talent and everything else outside of our control and how hard we work is something that we choose I mean, that's kind of what, why, how would that be? And why would that be? And on what basis do we have any evidence to support that? And actually, it's not clear. I mean, I think, you know, some data showing that how hard you work is a function of the 
quality of the relationships you have with your parents and not surprisingly how hard they work. So there's lots of things that are conditioned um, and maybe even effort, which we sort of bundle all this choice and free will into is also something that might be to some large degree outside of our control. And, and what makes you happy, Paul? What makes people happy? If any happiness expert can give you a very simple answer to that question, they're probably wrong um, because there are significant differences across individuals. And I think that's, that's why about, you know, particularly about when we're thinking about work, workplace wellbeing and stuff is that it really is about finding things that you feel have a point that, that, that you know, really do, do give you a sense of purpose in the moment of experiencing them. Um, and so that's going to be for you, you know, like some people like gardening, for God's sake. I mean, what the hell is that? Yeah, I mean, I know they do. And I, and I know there are good data showing that, that, that there are that, that people like it. But for me, I'd rather I could think of many other better uses of my time. I like spending time in the gym. I know that a lot of people would, would, would hate that. So I think it's whilst I can prescribe that you need to find a balance between pleasure and purpose. I think that's true. I think everybody ought to be finding activities that they either find fun or fulfilling and some combination thereof. I can't tell you what it is that you ought to be doing. Having said that, all of that big caveat, there is there are some things that are, I think, good for all of us, irrespective of who we are. And one of those is listening to music. I mean, that that's listening to music that you enjoy. Of course, we might listen to different music, but um, the brain literally lights up from listening to music, not just in that moment, but for some time afterwards. It, it's it elevates our our mood. It's been used a lot in music therapy. I mean, if if everybody listening listen to 15 minutes more music every day you could probably find the time to do that even if they're really busy they'd all be a little bit happier i think i could probably say that with some degree of confidence um it, spending time with people you like being with you know that's kind of difficult challenging in in the current circumstances that makes us happy um helping other people that's a really i'm, I'm a massive fan of pro-social behaviors because it's incredibly selfish um, it's 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 a really really good thing to do for yourself, um, and and you know, and as well as having benefits for other people. And so, some of these things might be just like really obvious, but they're overlooked. I think if actually, I think most people, if you ask them what makes them happy, they actually have a pretty good idea. The question would be, well, why aren't you doing more of it then? <laughs> so, so your point about um, helping others uh, yeah. is one that Socrates uh, agreed with. He felt that uh, altruism uh, was the thing that gave the greatest amount of happiness and pleasure. Yeah, but not. But to be clear, I'm not. I don't. I think we make a mistake when we think that that ought to be only other regarding. Um, there's lots of good. Actually, one of the areas that there are good experiments on good randomized controlled trials showing that you know when you draw attention to the personal benefits from pro-social behaviour, you get more of it and it lasts for longer. Um, and I think we've sometimes got into this narrative. Which I, which I talk about a little bit in it. Well, I actually have a chapter on, on the altruism narrative trap in Happy, Happy Ever After. We made a mistake of, of thinking that pro-sociality should be cleansed of personal benefit. Um, and as a result, we probably get less of it than we would otherwise if we, if we were to remind ourselves of how good it feels. And, and what about money? What about pay? Does that make people happy? Uh, poverty makes people miserable. I mean, th and that, that is really, I mean, you know, it's kind of glib when reasonably wealthy academics say money doesn't make you happy. Well, poverty makes you miserable. It's very attention seeking. I, you know, the things that make us happy and miserable, things that draw attention to themselves in good and bad ways and not being able to pay the bills, feed your kids, you know, whatever is very attention seeking. So, so any policies ought to be directed towards alleviating poverty and 
and the misery associated with it. But there are diminishing returns to ever more, actually anything in life, really, right? You know, you get a nice big hit to begin with, and then that hit starts to wear off over time. So, and that's true of income as well. And there comes a point at which, you know, we are addicted to chasing something that we think the next <clears throat> the next hit is going to make us happy. And of course, we get the ne- next hit, and then we need even more. Um, so, so there's a, there's a, there's a whole range of reaching narratives that I talk about in Happy Ever After, which are about this sort of this aspiration of 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 wanting more and more and more, irrespective of how much we've got. Um, and it's difficult because it's difficult for us to individually rein ourselves in when society is pushing us along. So I was kind of what you know, like in Happiness by Design, I tried to sort of set out, which was more of the it's more in the keeping of the sort of personal agenda, you know, how you can do things for yourself. Whereas happy ever after is more about what the constraints are in society that, you know, kind of placed on us that make it harder for us to be, to be happy. Um, and there's certainly a, a kind of expectation that you ought to be driven by, by more and more and more money, success status or whatever. So uh, are people that live in the developed world happier than people living in the developing world? Yeah, so the first thing to say is that I need to sort of, again, probably temper my own uh, knowledge of that because I'm not I'm not a, an expert on international comparisons. And I'm also not a great fan of international comparisons to some large degree because the way that the questions are translated and the way they're asked and the samples that are used and the mode of administration differs enormously across countries. And it makes it, for someone who's <clears throat> interested as much in the methodology of how we measure happiness as in the findings, it's there are some challenging issues in making international comparisons um insofar as we can of course you get what what i say of course I and mean, it's not of course but what you but what you get is the is kind of what you get at the individual level is that there are you know countries that are richer tend to be happier um but the but but that starts to diminish you know as they get richer still um and and of course there are other factors that determine a country's happiness beyond beyond income but again if you've got significantly large numbers of people in your nation that are in poverty then that's not good for them and and what about the idea of relativity that happiness comes from feeling that you're relatively better off than the person that's next to you yeah i mean there's this idea that what you want to do is you want to surround yourself with everybody who's less clever less funny you know less successful except one person who's more of those things so you've got the benefits of the downward comparison and then the uh you've got the one person to aspire to to drive you on i you know kind of i'm not sure how you could organize your life in that way but um there is some there is some sense in that i mean the, 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 not sense in doing that i mean there's some sense in the evidence of the relativity effects the challenge is though of course that we tend to look upwards rather than downwards and there'd be good evolutionary reasons why we might want to do that right? but um but if you ask, I find it, I find it interesting if you ask, um, I'm not the only person who's ever done this, of course, if you ask a, a classroom or a room full of, you know, execs or, or senior civil servants or whatever, hands up if you think you're rich, you know, and hardly anyone's hand goes up. But of course, they are almost certainly in the top 5% of the UK's population of income distribution. They are in the world's probably 0.05%. I mean, how can anybody not say they're rich? If you're in the top 1% of something, you would consider yourself to be doing well, right? But of course you don't because you don't have a yacht. Um, so so those reference standards really do shift. Um, and I think with income in particular, it's hard to know. If you ask me, like, do I think I'm well paid? It's hard to ask that answer that question without thinking compared to what. 
right? Would it be compared to what I might otherwise be earning doing another job compared to other people similar to me, other academics at the LSE? Um, it's it's hard to it's hard to know the answer to that question without making comparisons. Which is why I've actually been when I'm thinking about happiness measures, I like asking people how they feel, because whilst there will be some, everything's going to be reference dependent. But but you know how warm I am now, for example, right? It's not really a function of how warm or cold you're feeling, even if you're in the same room. So so there are there are things I can ask you about your feelings that would be um, more absolute in some sense than these evaluative questions that ask you how well you're doing compared to other people. And I, I read a piece of research, Paul, that said that uh, the magic number for uh, earnings was £65,000, that when you earn £65,000, <laughs> you sort of reach your peak happiness in terms of earnings. But then when your earnings go over £100,000, you become less happy because you start, as you were saying, looking up and you see the person with the yacht and you think, well, 100000 isn't enough. So how, how do you sort of view the spectrum of earnings in terms of happiness or not? Yeah, so the first thing to say as an academic is to really caveat that is we don't have randomised controlled trials where we've been allocating people to different amounts of money to see the cause and effects of income on happiness. That would be either, that would be the only way in which we could truly ever know, right? So all we've, all we've got is correlational evidence, which is not, you know, which is clearly not proof of any causation. In the correlations, it is interesting in some data, um, not in the life satisfaction data, but in some of the experience-based data that, I'm that I've been most interested in. It is true that you do see slightly lower levels of happiness in the richest groups compared to those in sort of high-ish incomes. Um, and I reckon some of that, you know, some of that is an, is an adjustment of expectations. Some of what some of what drives you to be richer is going to mean that you crowd out, that, that it crowds out doing other things like using your time with people that you enjoy being with, listening to music and helping other people. All those things that that you that you stop doing or do less um, when you're when you're driven to to, to earn more. Um, I think maybe that you start paying attention to money in different ways. I mean. You know, you mentioned football at the beginning. They always used to say that a good referee is one that doesn't get noticed, right, on the pitch. He's, he's, he's had a really good game, normally him or her, um, um, of had a good game when you haven't noticed them. And and money's, and I think money's like that. You, you, you've kind of got enough when you don't notice it. And I think, obviously, when you're poor, you're paying attention to it. But sometimes when you're rich, you can start paying more attention to it, right? Have I got the right stocks and shares, portfolio of investments and stuff? All these things that, all these things that then start, you know, worrying about. Um, that I didn't worry about when when I was on high-ish income. So, so if for the people listening to this podcast, money isn't necessarily the driver of happiness at work, um, you can earn enough, but then you can arguably earn too much. What are the biggest drivers of happiness at work? I think it comes back to that purpose piece. And I think it's important not just for people who are at work employees but also for employers right so you know you think about some of the studies that have looked at interventions to improve worker well-being ones where you try to introduce fun into the workplace which by the way i'm all for, I'm, I'm all for fun um i think it's and certainly amongst academics it's a sadly neglected uh, uh part of their lives to some degree but um it, you know employees often spot the you know the sort of inauthenticity of a bouncy castle or something right you know it's kind of it's it's sort of we know why management are doing this but but when you're when you're when you're galvanizing people's interests um with their purpose you know making them feel like they're doing something that's important and that, 
and that's worthwhile. That's improving happiness. It's it's improving their experience as a purpose, but it's doing it in a in a much less contrived and authentic way. And you know, I think then it then it become then it becomes a case. Actually, you can improve worker well being by very simple interventions. Again, it needs to be authentic. But you know, if someone spent a lot of time working on a project, this might have happened a lot now and happens a lot before. But you know, and then it suddenly changes or is terminated. You know, that is the time to say thank you for the efforts that you put in today. You know, we'll we'll hopefully be able to use some of this work again in another project or blah blah. blah. But just to, just to make them feel like what they've done has been worth it because. The worst thing is to have all this done and then just for it to disappear. And so much of what we do in work, we do it and it disappears. It's not even when the project is counted, it's just like it just disappears. And I think that sort of authentic feedback um, that people are actually doing something that has a point to it um, is really significant. There's nothing worse than feeling like you're wasting time. So you can think, I think a lot of people will think, oh, well, you know, pay me enough and, and, and that'll be fine. But there's a lot of, you know misery in 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 way in wasting your time in, in all the research that we've done uh recognition is more valued than pay when you get your pay to a certain level and yet uh i don't know if you've done research on this paul but the the research that we've done has said that uh on average people are thanked or congratulated on a piece of work once every four months and they're criticized twice a week and uh, recognition is such a powerful motivator in the workplace, drives happiness, and yet we're not particularly good at it. Um, which no, is uh, your view on recognition and its importance? Yeah, that's a fascinating ratio. So some of the some other evidence, which is not, you know, is not categorical, is not clearly clearly fact, but there is some suggestion that you know about you need sort of three three to seven good comments to compensate for one bad. I mean, we would, if you think that's the ratio, then it's like it's almost the other way around completely uh, and probably even more. So the recognition is important. I, I want to say, though, that it doesn't need to be public and actually often shouldn't be public. So if you think about sort of signaling out employee of the month, that's the worst possible thing to do to that person um often and it's and it's certainly not very nice to the person who thinks they ought to be employee of the month um so 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 a lot of this quite rightly ought to be done privately but companies actually do quite insofar as they do any recognition it's often public right it's often the sort of celebration of the successful teams and stuff which makes them embarrassed and other people envious so so i think there's a way of we need to you're absolutely right about the recognition and thank you but but and I'm not saying but because it's not but to what you said and um, a lot of that needs to be done privately. And, and Paul, tell me about the relationship you've had with your managers. Who's who's got it right and made you feel happy and valued, and who's got it oh, wrong and why? It's a good question. Those that have left me alone, I think. I mean, I think one of the good. I mean, I one of the privileges of being an academic until I until I help create a new department at the LSE to put psychological and behavioral science on 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 the on the map as it were was was you know kind of being able to sort of leave the academic management to those that were interested in it because I don't really like you know I'm not really inclined or predisposed to management really so I think allowing people that are good at it to get on with it insofar as some people are good at it and then being left alone to get on with my research has always been a privilege i think for most of my academic career as i say it wasn't true more recently when i was helping to set up a new department but 
yeah, I think um, one of the things in some of the time use data that shows one of the least happy times of people's work life is time with their boss. I mean, that's a pretty sad indictment of management, isn't it, really? When, uh, you know, the time that you the time that you hate most is with the person that, that, you know, that ought to be the inspiration or the kind of, you know, person that's kind of galvanizing you. When actually, much of the time, it, 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 it isn't. And I, do, and I think that we often get lost in any workplace in details of processes and things and not pay enough attention to actually what it is that we're actually doing, what we're meant to be doing. I've always been struck by, kind of, you know, do people actually, you know, just the question, do people actually know what their objectives, you know, like, like what they are actually going to work to substantively do? I mean, not to actually what they do day to day, but just actually what is what is the contribution? And I don't mean that in any big grand sense, but you know, what do they feel like their contribution is? And I and I suspect that not every employee could answer that question. So, what what would you say are the attributes of a good boss? What does a good boss do that makes somebody feel happier in the workplace? Well, I think a good boss. I mean, think about a good boss in any environment, like a football manager. If you want to come back to that analogy, is that there are many different players in the team. Um, I mean, my my boy, my boy plays football. My daughter's twelve. Daughter's my, my daughter's twelve. She climbs, so that's all very solo and very individual. Our son's eleven, and he, and he plays a lot of football. And you know, who are the good managers that he works with? Well, the ones that understand the differences between the kids. You know, some of them need <laughs> more of a carrot, others more of a stick. And actually, sometimes that will vary. Even that's quite difficult across game. You know, across weeks, even as kids you know are developing their personalities and stuff so i think it's it's being alert to the differences that exist within your team um and and having a and and i think that what we struggle we struggle generally with perspective taking i mean that's actually quite a difficult challenge I mean, it takes the brain it takes the human brain about 25 years to fully develop and the last bit of that development is perspective taking that's the bit that's hard that's the bit that's hardest for us and of course you're, you're no many adults as well as I do who have never never quite grown up, who have never quite been able to adopt someone else's perspective. And I think that is that's a good that's a good human being. I don't think that's just a, just a good manager is to to appreciate that that the that the that the eyes through which someone else looks at the world are not necessarily yours. And and thinking about that coach analogy, your manager analogy, how is important do you think it is that that manager or coach has a genuine interest in the player in the individual in helping them to succeed does that drive happiness yeah i would feel like that people would want to generally feel like i mean autonomy is important to us you know feeling like you have some control over things so feeling like you're engaged in the workplace where you're, where the boss isn't you know that's where the football analogy breaks down a little bit because sometimes the managers are telling the players exactly what to do um, but you know, giving them some shared ownership in 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 what's going on, I think that's generally good. But again, not everybody's going to want that. Some people, just, you know, there's nothing wrong with just going to work. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, right? You know, and sort of doing a job and coming home and wanting to switch off. I think, I think, you know, especially it goes to this ambition thing and the drive thing. It's like, you know, obviously a lot of the consultancy firms. It's like, you know, when's the next promotion? When's the next promotion? And you get. You get shipped out if you don't get promoted. It's like, well, can't I just be happy with doing what I'm doing? <laughs> so, so I think I think that's you know, it's finding that it's finding that balance in, in for any corporation between 
you know that ambition and the drive and, and that, that, that can sometimes get a bit obsessive and, and at the same time sort of appreciating that not everybody is driven in quite the same way or to the same same extent or even by the same things just give our listeners a a view of covid and in your experience now how you think that's affecting people so i i mean i mean look i said this in march so it's not like i'm saying anything after the fact now and i, and I actually wanted to say it in march because i wanted to say it then as opposed to saying it now i think that no country and it's not just the uk should ever have shut its schools um, I, I think I think it was a disproportionate response on the on to, to to the to the very most vulnerable people in our society. I think in the UK we've seen we've now seen about up to about a hundred thousand kids that have just gone missing from school, right? And it's not like it's not like they just took, they, they just and their schools don't know where they are, right? They left in March when the schools closed and they haven't gone back. They're in county line gangs. They're they're wherever they are. And those lives are most of those lives are now on a trajectory that will end up in you know, an early death prison or, you know, other things as well. They're not, they're not going to be happy ever after stories. Um, and I think we neglected, and this is not just the UK. I think this is, this is why it's an interest. I mean, <laughs> it's a sad thing, but it's an interesting question about how all countries were galvanized by and large in very similar ways to react in very similar ways um, by, by shutting down great swathes of their economic and social life, uh, particularly schools. Um, and, and, you know, sweet, there's lots of discussions about how Sweden have done things differently. You know, the social distancing measures and closing the bar, they, they, they've been, you know, there's a lot of similarities as well in what's happened in Sweden to what's happened elsewhere. But the, all the under 16 stayed in school. There wasn't a day that they that they missed of uh, school. And, 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 I, and I would have liked to have seen, and I would still like to see more prominence given to what we're doing to young people, vulnerable, vulnerable young people. Um, not just kids in school, but people from loneliness, mental health problems. And I think we've become, there are very good behavioural reasons why we've got ourselves in, into the direction that we have. We can explain it all. Um, but I think from a social welfare perspective, I, I have a very strong desire to uh, to sort of protect, look after, whatever, um, improve the life chances of very young, vulnerable people. Um, and I think we've neglected them. And I, and I think that in in the fullness of time, when we reflect internationally on the on the response, not just in the UK, I think we're going to we're going to see that coming through in all sorts of ways um, and and think what how we went wrong. I think that would be my own summary of of of, of where we are with that. I think that, you know, also we've got it's kind of this discussion that's been taking place about, you know, health versus economy or, or lives versus livelihoods. And that sort of social life bit in between gets gets squeezed out. You know, and it's not just social life as in going out into parties and having fun. It's actually social connection. It's contact. It's it's loneliness. It's the mental health problems that come from isolation. I think they've been sort of squeaked. I don't I don't hear too many voices, you know, sort of prominent voices arguing about the social costs of the measures uh you hear about the health and economic costs of which are significant and important but um you know the the the, the impact that we're having right now on people's mental health and loneliness and so on is really significant and i and i i kind of a bit depressed actually to be honest with you that there hasn't been more more discussion of, of those effects not just in the uk but internationally too and how has it affected you paul because obviously as a 
as a professor at a university, uh, teaching has been moved online. Obviously, uh, there's been less interaction with students in all kinds of ways. So how has it impacted on you? Um, personally, not too much. And I think that's, a, again, a, a challenge, an issue. I think if you think about, I'm very interested in diversity in decision making. Um, and not just of the characteristics that you would typically think, but increasingly of age um, and experiences. And if you think about, you know, how, how, how old are you, Mark? 59. Yeah, I'm 52, right? So if you took our ages and then, so plus or minus seven of my age, right, go down to 45, up to 59, you've probably got, what, 90% of the decision makers covered by that age range, um, not just in the UK, but internationally. Um, and we've mostly got jobs where we can work from home. Um, and people who are both young and old um, have, not been, have not been voices that have been heard from very much in the decision-making processes, let alone just generally. Um, people whose lives are affected at those ends of the age spectrum are just, are just, are just not in... The discussion it'd be interesting to me think about how the decisions may have been different and the balance of trade-offs may have been different if those voices had been heard more loudly earlier on or even now um so i so i i'm you know lucky i'm when when we get the messages stay at home home is a nice place for me it's a it's a warm place with central heating and a nice garden um that isn't true for many for many people who are who are asked to stay at stay at home our kids have been our kids are very active. As I mentioned, the sports, I mean, that's now ended. So my daughter's climbing will stop and my son's football will stop. And, you know, that's personally, uh, selfishly frustrating. But I also think, again, I don't, you know, nine aside football on a Sunday morning for an 11-year-old boy, having that stopped now for whenever, how long that's going to last for, is that is that a measured response to the pandemic? And And Paul... When you look at your books and you talk about the myth of happiness, yeah, what would you say to the people about discovering happiness? What's going to make them happy? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard to avoid it's hard to avoid narratives and stories completely, right? Anyone who says, you know, like. Anyone who says, I don't care what people think of me is clearly someone who cares a lot, right? Because whoever says that, of course, everyone everyone cares about things. Everyone, you know, we're not pathological, unless you are, actually. <laughs> um, but um, so we can't help but have narratives and stories. They make life coherent and they and they give, a, give sense to a chaotic world. But the question would be whether the narratives that we might have sort of unthinkingly followed are actually ones that are consistent with, with us being happy. You know, for some people that will be to get married. For some people, it won't be. For some people, it'll be to have kids. For others, it won't be. For some people, it'll be to have a successful career and loads of money. For others, it won't be. And I think it is that, that's a bit of a boring answer, um, but there isn't a one size fits all. And it comes to perspective taking again. So this idea of kind of that, you know, you might have a particular job or type of marriage or whatever, and you think that's works, that's what other people should do. Well, it works for you, but it might not work for them. So I think that, 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 in, that, I don't know, sort of just reflection on 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 difference. I think is is seems to be a theme that's emerging naturally through through our conversations. I I know. I mean, you couldn't. I know that 
I wouldn't be happy as a crew Alexander supporter and uh, I guess you wouldn't be happy as a West Ham fan. So we just basically have to carry on living those well, different I can, lives. I can honestly tell you there aren't very many happy crew Alexandra fans. <laughs> no, well, at least your relative... I mean, I don't know what your relative comparisons are with that. I suppose you're looking up, up, upwards to the teams at the top of League One. Um, but, you know, football is in a... Like, like everywhere, is in a real... You know, that, that's a crisis. You know, what, what's going to happen to communities? I think that that's, again, you know, that in the decision-making... So I, I like these kind of random detours because they create a new new path of conversation because I think one of the things that the decision makers in their in their lack of diversity don't fully appreciate is is the role of ceremony um, is the role of community in people's lives how significant some of these activities are as really important determinants of happiness and well-being not for any other consequent effect than, than other than just being part of the human condition I think that they can sometimes we can sometimes all of us can sometimes lose sight of those really important components when we're paying attention to other things no, I, I would agree. And, uh, you know, I've reflected that over the lockdown, some of the things that I realised I missed most is going to a concert and being part of a large group of people singing a song together, being at a football stadium or a rugby stadium, cheering on a team with other people, that being part of a group, part of a crowd, that that's, I've discovered is really important to me. I hadn't realised until I couldn't do it. And yeah. it's a bit like you saying about music, but... I think that the social aspects of what we do and what makes us are probably now more important to us than we've ever realised. No, I completely agree. And, you know, it's not, again, you kind of always feel like you have to caveat this because you're saying you just want to like, oh, what are you going to do? Just let 100,000 people in a stadium and let them all jump up and down and, you know, split each other's faces. Well, of course you're not going to do that. Of course you're not going to do that. You could let, you know, into, an, into a 60,000-seat stadium, you might let in 10,000 or 15,000 at most, properly socially distanced. You know, you could, it's entirely possible for football clubs to have the measures in place that would enable them to do those activities relatively safe. And nothing's ever completely safe. It's about balance of risk. But it's it's the benefits of that are not are not featuring very prominently in the discussion. That's kind of, I think, where we're going with this. The cost of, the cost of measurable, the, the, the infection control experts can tell us about what effects these things might have on the R number, but but what we're not getting is any is any sense of what the benefits being lost are from not being allowed to engage in relatively safe activities. So I'm going to ask you two last questions. Yeah. The first is, if you were giving your son and daughter advice about what's going to make them happy as they grow up, what would you yeah. tell them? Don't listen to their dad. That's probably uh. Well, don't listen to. I mean, listen to maybe listen to the dad because he's not like other dads. But don't, but don't, don't listen to people who are telling you what you ought to be doing. I think that's the. And parents often have a nat natural danger of that. Well, I'm bound to do that, right? I want them to live the lives that I think they ought to lead to be happy, which is not necessarily the lives that would that would make them happy. So I think you know we're already seeing anyone that's got kids who's got more than one child will immediately notice differences between. You know, our 12 and 11-year-olds are brought up in exactly the same environment with the same set of values and whatever. They're different. Politically, it looks like they might be different too, right? There's these things that are just, you know, naturally different about them. And the more we have conversations with them, the more I'm drawing attention to the perspective differences, the fact that they can, that they will, that they will see the world differently. The same thing will happen to them and it will be experienced differently. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's what I would get them to try to do to sort of muddle through getting feedback from what they're doing, whether it feels pleasurable or purposeful and carry on doing those things that feel good and stop doing those things that feel bad. 
And then, and then my last question to you is, um, uh, and going back to the theme of music, is the one piece of music that you hear that makes you feel happy when you hear it? Oh, yeah, that's such a good question. So I would probably, I mean, I'd love, I'd have to pick a dance tune. I'd probably pick God is a DJ by Faithless. I think that's a, that's a nice popular song that people will be familiar with. I think that would be, get that on and turn it up loud. Well, on that note, Paul, uh, thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you for being on this podcast and thank you for sharing your amazing insight into um, happiness, happiness at work, what makes people happy. And um, if you'd like to get Paul's books, they're available in the uh, Work or Business Library, uh, Happy Ever After, and also Happiness by Design, Finding Pleasure and Purpose in Everyday Life. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was a pleasure and a purpose. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co, where you can find out how you can get happier at work. <laughs>